So some of you may have seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Or some of you have maybe read The Odyssey. So either one, there's this whole scene where Odysseus and his sailors go past the island with the sirens. Not the woo-woo sirens, but these are like um, beautiful singing women-type creatures, I guess you'd say, that sing really beautifully, and they draw the sailors into the shore with their beautiful singing. And so the sailors are drawn in to want to come ashore, and then when they get ashore, the sirens turn into these flesh-eating monsters that attack the sailors. So what Odysseus has to do is as they're going by, he has to put wax in the ears to prevent them from being enticed by the beautiful singing sirens. And so even today we talk about like if there's a, a voluptuous woman, whoops, it sounds like that. It went, if there's like a, um, oh, you know, like a voluptuous woman that's wanting to entice a man, she's called a siren. So when you think about a seductress, there's been a lot of seductresses in literature, in movies, but we also think about famous temptresses in the Bible. Think about Delilah. Delilah tempted Samson with what? The whole story about cutting his hair. Or Jezebel. She held power over her husband, uh, King Ahab, and she was wanting to murder the prophet Elijah. You even think about movies like Fatal Attraction and other weird, you know, things like that. Lady Macbeth. Strong women who want to seduce a man to sexual immorality. Now, what does a powerful seductress have to do with the life of Joseph in Genesis? Well, last week we started this journey in Genesis 37. And, and where did we end? We ended with Joseph being sold into slavery by the Ishmaelites, and it just so happens he's in Potiphar's house. And so we come to, we're skipping Genesis 38 for the sake of, of time, just because we have a few more weeks left, but we're, we're in Genesis 39 tonight, and we're introduced to a temptress, and we don't even know her name. The Bible does, Moses does not name her, she's just called Potiphar's wife. We have Potiphar, but she's called Potiphar's wife. And one of the issues that we dealt with last week was this whole idea, when we look at the life of Joseph, we want to scream out, that's not fair. And remember last week I said, my job as your pastor is to help you suffer well. It's not if you're going to suffer, it's when are you going to suffer, and how do we suffer well for the glory of God. So it wasn't fair for Joseph to be betrayed by his brothers as a 17-year-old. It wasn't fair for them to lie to Jacob. It wasn't fair for him to be sold into slavery. It wasn't fair at all. And nothing in life is fair. So if we look through the lens of fairness, we are not truly understanding God's sovereign plan. Because often, what do we want to do? We want to control our destiny. We want to control our future. We don't want to deal with heartache. We don't want to deal with pain. We don't want to deal with suffering. And so just listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said, in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus doesn't say you may have tribulation. He says you will have tribulation. And I think if there's one verse that summarizes Joseph's life up to this point, and especially what we're going to see tonight, is 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be or may be, but will be persecuted. Now, some people think we live in kind of a yin-yang type universe or karma where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and you better not do bad things because karma is going to come back and, and, and get you. And the Bible speaks nothing about that. The Bible does tell us this, and this is a hard truth. Okay, so let me, just, let me just state this tonight. Sometimes you may suffer for doing the right thing. You may do everything right. You may do everything godly. You may walk with integrity and still have to suffer because of that. 
And that's what we see tonight in Joseph. And when those things happen to us, like when you do the right thing and you're walking in integrity and you're walking in holiness and you make the right decision and you have to suffer for it, what, what's, what does every fiber in our being want to say? That's not fair, God. You should reward me for my holiness. Well, anytime we think God should do something, we're walking on, <laughs> we're treading on, 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 on uh, shaky ground there. So, as we turn to Genesis 39 tonight, there are three, I call them three sections or three scenes. Now remember, this is Old Testament Hebrew narrative. Moses is our narrator, and so he is reporting this in a narrative of events. And so, we're going to explore these three scenes tonight. And so, here's the first um, portion. It's in verses 1 through 6a. And we see the Lord's gracious presence as Joseph prospers in Potiphar's house. And as we read this, I want you to notice a phrase that's repeated over and over again, which is kind of the key to this entire passage. So let's read this together, Genesis 39, 1 through 6a. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, who is Potiphar? He's the captain of the guard, okay? Potiphar is a powerful man. He was the head of Pharaoh's security detail. He was like the head of the Secret Service, if you will. I'm sure he was probably good at reading people. He may have assassinated people. We don't, know, we don't know any of that stuff. All we know is that he is a powerful man. He is the captain of the guard. And Joseph finds himself in this man's house. Now, is that a coincidence? Did Joseph just like wander and find himself into the, the second most powerful man or one of the most powerful men in, in, in Pharaoh's court's house? No. Was Joseph lucky? No. God sovereignly orchestrated Joseph to be there, even through being sold into slavery. And so the key phrase in this entire chapter, and it shows up four times, is the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. Which basically means that God's gracious presence was granting Joseph success in the eyes of Potiphar. God was blessing Joseph. God was causing Joseph to succeed. And it wasn't due to Joseph's ingenuity or intelligence or charismatic personality. Now, God may have used those, but really it was because God was sovereignly doing this in Joseph's life. And Joseph's not some field hand. He kind of moves up the ranks, and he's in charge of everything. Potiphar trusts him with everything. Now, I want you to notice something. There's a weird statement there, and we'll come back to it. And when you study the Hebrew text, you're wondering, like, why is that little detail there? And that's at the end of verse 6. He left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. That's a weird expression, food. Why, why would Joseph be in charge of everything but the food? What, what's that all about? We'll find out soon what that means. So Joseph has gone from being violently betrayed by his brothers, left for dead in that cistern, to now being the leader of Potiphar's household because the Lord was with him. By the way, remember last week, what did I say? The word the Lord or God or Yahweh does not show up in the entire chapter of chapter 37. The name the Lord doesn't show up. And we, we asked last week, where's God in this? And we said, well, God's not explicitly listed, but he's all over the place. Here in this passage, this is one of the few chapters in the story of Joseph 
that explicitly mentions the Lord in all caps there, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the setup here that we see in these first few verses is that Joseph is a blessed man. And one commentator said this, I like what he said. He said, amid Joseph's many blessings, he suffers from one endowment too many. What's that one endowment too many? Stunning good looks. <laughs> the one thing Joseph was blessed with maybe too much was that he had good looks. All right? And that's kind of what we see there at the very end of, well, chapter, or verse 6 is kind of broken up in two in the ESV. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So the, the first section we see here is the setup. Joseph's a successful man. God's hands all over him. He's been blessed. God is working in his life to bring him to this point of being in charge of almost everything that Potiphar has entrusted to him, except for the food. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Okay, now let's look at the second section here. The Lord's gracious presence as Joseph flees the seduction of Potiphar's wife. All right, let's keep reading. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put me in charge and has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or even to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now, it's very, very interesting. As you read the Bible, just think about this. Not many people's looks are described. Do we know what Moses looked like? Do we know what Paul looks like? Okay, very few people are described. We know a little bit about what David looks like, but notice how Moses describes Joseph. He was handsome in form and appearance. Now, where did he get that? He's got good genes. Who's his mom? Joseph's mom is Rachel. And it's said exactly the same thing about Rachel that's said about Joseph. So if you go back to Genesis 29, 17, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. That's why Jacob was drawn to her. If you go back and you read that narrative back in Genesis 29, you really kind of find out that she's a drop-dead gorgeous babe, okay, Rachel. And Jacob's smitten with her, and now her son, Joseph, has inherited her good looks. And so he's, for lack of a better term, in our modern-day parlance, it would be he's, he's a stud, okay? He's a, he's a good-looking dude. He's built, he's handsome, and let me just stop because there's nothing wrong with that. If God has so blessed you, not necessarily me, but if God's blessed you with good, handsome, you know, beautiful figure and, and, and stuff like that, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Um, so we can't blame Joseph for being built and handsome. That's not the problem. It's not Joseph's fault that he inherited good genes from his mom. But Potiphar's wife, she's the head of the household slaves. She's not named in the story. She has eyes on one thing. What's the one thing she wants? To sleep with Joseph. And she, in verse 7, says, 
lie with me. Now, I can't give you the modern translation to that because it's probably a more of a PG-13 term. So in the Hebrew, it's two short, crude words. And the way it's constructed in the original language is like an animalistic appetite. It's not like, hey, come, let's, we're all adults here, so I'm just, I'm hopefully everybody, it's not just, hey, Joseph, would you like to go have sex with me? It's more of a strong, animalistic come on that's very crude, that she kind of accosts him with. So in a way, you can think of this as almost like sexual harassment in a way because she's a woman in power. Who's, who's the slave here? Joseph is the slave. Joseph is in a no-win situation because he really can't cross her because he's not the one in power. So this is more than just lust. This is an abuse of power. And let me just guess something, okay? The text doesn't say this, but this is a guess. This is Sean's sanctified imagination. I'm sure Potiphar's wife has always got what she's wanted. Nobody's ever said no to Potiphar's wife. And so here you have a handsomely built man that's being seduced, and she's the master manipulator, and she crudely says, come lie with me. Now, let's, just, let's ask a deeper question here. Who is the real slave in this story? At first glance, you say, well, it's Joseph. Joseph's the slave, right? He's physically in slavery. He's a servant. Of course, Pastor Sean, he's the slave. But who's the real slave in this story? It's Potiphar's wife. She is an unbeliever enslaved to her lusts and her power, and she can't say no, and she does not like anyone to say no to her. So she's enslaved to sin. Joseph is in physical slavery, but is the one who's truly free because the Lord is with him. So, you have to ask the question, how can Joseph say no to this temptation? So just he has good willpower? What has been the setup? What has Moses kind of told us as the setup? God was with him. The Lord was with him. In other words, Joseph has a walk with the Lord. He's got a close relationship with the Lord. Now, if you read this text carefully, Joseph gives three reasons why he can't do this. Now, let's look at these reasons. Here's reason number one. The first relates to his position in the issue of trust. So look at verse 8. He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that's in my charge. This would be an abuse of, this would be an abuse of power. I mean, Potiphar's trusted me with this. If I were to cross that line with you, I've lost all trust. I can't do that. So that's, that's more of a practical reason. But secondly, he refuses because of his relationship with Potiphar. Notice what he says in verse 9. He is, not greater in the, is he not greater in the house than I am? Nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife? Basically, he's saying there, I would be offending my master if I did this. Remember I said the word food? When, when Potiphar said, you can be in charge of everything, but don't touch the food. Okay, now why was that told earlier? Because the word for food in the Hebrew is a play on words. It's a euphemism for sex with his wife. In other words, what Potiphar is saying to Joseph in a subtle way, because maybe he knows his wife, okay, you can be in charge of everything. You can oversee everything. Just don't touch my wife. She's off limits. Don't touch the food, i.e., don't touch my wife. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Do you get the hint, Joseph? So number two, Joseph's like, okay, number one, I can't do this because I'm in a position of trust. Number two, I can't do this because Potiphar told me. He gave me that warning that I was not to touch, quote, unquote, the food. But what's the most important reason? Look at the third reason. It was the most important. He gives 
the reason and it's directed toward his relationship with the Lord. What does he say? At the end of verse 9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's the most important. Practical reason, I'm in charge and I would lose Potiphar's trust. Practical reason, Potiphar told me not to touch you. Ultimate reason, I'd be sinning against my God. And this is sinful. So he knew that ultimately, to give in to her advances, he would be sinning first and foremost against God, who forbids adultery and commands us to live in purity. Now she's shocked that someone said no to her. How do we know that? How do we know that she doesn't like being said no? Because look at verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. She hounds him day after day. She does not take no for an answer. She keeps coming back. She keeps coming back. So this is not just a one-time seduction. This is like I'm, I'm, I'm finding every opportunity I can to corner this guy. And I'm going to get my way eventually because I'm Potiphar's wife. And nobody says no to me. Now, it's very interesting because look at verse 11. One day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house just happened to be there. Now, is that a coincidence? We don't know if Joseph made the schedule. (laughs) We don't know that. But we could guess, the text doesn't tell us this, but could you guess that Potiphar arranged it to where everybody would be gone and that she could set up a situation where she would be in a house along with Joseph? She could have very easily said, servants, I need you to go off and do something. And they're going to listen to her. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. All we know is just one day, when nobody was around, he is alone in the house. Now, verse 12, she caught him by the garment. Now, again, you don't get this in your original language. You don't get this in the, in, in the original. In, you don't get this in your English translations, but in the Hebrew, it's almost like, almost like she tried to rape him. It's a violent. She caught him. She attacked him. She came on very, very strong. Now, this is the moment of truth for Joseph. Nobody else is around. She's got him cornered. This is the moment of truth. Now, let's think about what Joseph could have said. What excuses could Joseph have given to rationalize? Now, again, it's not in the text. I'm just making some, I'm I'm thinking about what Joseph could say at that moment. Again, the text doesn't tell us. Now, he could say, I'm lonely and I deserve to have my needs met. After all, I'm a young man. Or he could say this, I'm from a dysfunctional family of sexual perverts. Look at my dad and my brothers. This is just who I am. It's just part of, it's part of my genes. I, I really can't help it. I was, I was born in this family, and I got a bunch of brothers and, and, and people. This is just who we are. Or he could say, you know what? If I do this, I could get ahead. I could raise the ranks. I could get in the good graces with her, and this may give me a promotion. I could, I could have a powerful ally. Or he could say, God, please take the desire away, and if you want me not to do this, give me a sign from heaven. I mean, he could have done something like that. Okay, he doesn't. What's the one thing that Joseph does here in a narrative that Paul teaches us in the New Testament? You see the word. What, is it, what does he do? Verse 13. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand. Oh, I'm sorry. Go back to verse 12. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. What did he do? He ran away. Left his garment. Now, that's important. He left his garment. Joseph's not thinking about the garment. He's just like, i got to get out of here. So he flees. He flees temptation. Now, what does the New Testament tell us, especially Paul? 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20. We actually see the verb there. Flee. From sexual immorality, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Flee sexual immorality. 
And then 2 Timothy 2, 2, 2. Okay, 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He does not negotiate with her, but he runs out of the house. He flees. Now, Joseph could have hurt her. I mean, Joseph could have literally hurt her. He could have, we don't know how big Joseph was, how big she was. He could have counteracted the attack and attacked her back, but he doesn't do that. He does the godly thing, and he does what we should do, and that is flee. Now, I've asked this question before, and I don't know if I have an answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Where's my water? What is more powerful, sexual temptation or Satan? And I'm going to ask it a different way. We are told to flee temptation, but we're told to stand against the devil and he will flee from you. I don't know what the answer is there. I just know that there's an interesting... You cannot negotiate with sexual temptation. You've got to flee. And so, the reason why Joseph fled, and it's not explicit in the text, but the Lord was with him. And he understood sin. Notice what he says. I find it very interesting to see what Joseph says. What does he call it? Go back up there to verse 9. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice he doesn't call it an affair. He calls it a great wickedness. A great wickedness. So one of the keys to resisting temptation is that you call sin, sin. You realize how offensive it is to God. You don't down, like our culture downplays sin we, we, th- we thought of every different words we can use to not really call it what it is. It's an extramarital affair. No, it's called adultery. And Joseph here calls it a great wickedness. Part of fleeing sin is seeing sin how God sees sin. Oftentimes, we want to justify sin. We want to downplay it. We want to rename it. We don't like calling it lying. What do we say? Oh, he kind of exaggerates the truth. Oh, it's just a little white lie. We don't call it stealing. We call it, I'm going to borrow it and return it some, someday. We don't call it adultery. We basically say, you know what, I have, I have needs and my spouse isn't meeting, so I'm entitled to this. I think sometimes we get skilled at dodging the hideous nature of sin because we don't call it sin. We don't call it what God calls it. But Joseph called it a great wickedness. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? Now, just go back to the narrative here. There's one piece of evidence that she's, that he's, that that's left behind, and that's the garment. Remember what I said last week about this Joseph narrative? If you follow Joseph all the way through the end, clothing, clothes tell the story. Pay attention to the clothes. What was Joseph given last week? A coat of many colors. How was he betrayed? It was stripped off of him. And it was dipped in blood and given to Jacob as a lie. Now, so, so Joseph was originally betrayed with a coat of many colors. Now he's being betrayed by Potiphar's wife. And what's left is his outer garment, the clothes. She's holding the clothes. Okay, so now, we're going to, because, because we have a lot of time on Wednesday nights, we're going we're gonna to jump out of the text for a moment, and I'm going to deal with temptation. So we're going to be a little bit, just a little bit practical tonight. Because you can't teach this Joseph narrative and not talk about temptation. So I want us to talk about the question, how do you handle temptation? And I want to give six biblical principles for handling temptation. Um, so this is just a little extra teaching tonight. We're going to jump back to Genesis, but we're going to just kind of pause in the narrative. We looked at scene one, scene two. 
Joseph flees. So let's look at this. First of all, understand the foolishness of overconfidence. And what I mean by that is the moment you say, I would never do that, or I would never fall into that, or I, I would never, that, that, that's, that's a weakness other Christians have. Remember what Peter said right before he denied Jesus three times? I'll go to death with you, Jesus. I'll stand with you to the bitter end. All those other guys, they may fail, but I'll stand with you. And what happens? The rooster crowed three times and Peter denied Christ. So, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We don't often use the word haughty. What does the word haughty mean? Haughty. Prideful, snooty, you're wise in your own eyes. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, an arrogance, a puffed up spirit. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own, I, I love this proverb. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Trust in your own mind. It's not a good place to go. Trusting in yourself. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 10, or 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Now, I'm going to talk about this Sunday morning, but I'm going to give you a little preview. And then David talked about it Sunday. So we have three enemies, do we not? The unholy trinity, okay? The unholy trinity. The world, the flesh, the devil. And I think we need to realize how insidious those enemies are. Is the world coming at us in full force? Is the world discipling you and your children whether you know it or not? Yes. Are you battling with your own flesh? Yes. Is the devil a real enemy? So the moment that you get overconfident and think, I'm never going to sin, I'm never going to fall, you need to remember, I have three real enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they're coming in hot every day. And so the spiritual battle is ongoing. So never get overconfident thinking, I'm never going to fall, I'm going to stand strong, I've got this. You need to be humble and be watchful and realize that the moment you think you're not going to fall is that pride. Pride goes before a fall. Okay, Number two, and there's no particular order to these, so um, know and protect your heart with the gospel. Know your heart and protect your heart with the gospel. What does Jeremiah 17, 9 say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, I've had somebody ask me the question over the years, does that, is that talking about the regenerated heart? Or is that the unregenerated heart? I don't know, but I would say this. Even though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and we have the Holy Spirit, cannot our heart still deceive us? So just follow your heart, right? Just go where your heart's telling you, right? No, no, you don't want to do that. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart, that's what Disney tells you, right? All the Disney movies, follow your heart. Just follow your heart. So know your heart and don't follow your heart. Know your heart's deceitful deceitful proverbs 4 23 through 27 keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life put away from you crooked crooked speech and put devious talk from you let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you ponder the path of your feet then all your ways will be sure do not swerve to the right or to the left turn your foot away from evil so you need to become very acquainted with your heart what particular areas of weakness does your heart get drawn to? What captures your heart? You fall into temptation because sin always starts with desire in the heart. What does James say about desire? James 1, 13-14. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire you have sinful desires that are deep down in your heart and here's the problem sometimes they're so deep that you don't know they're there 
And so one thing that you should pray often, that I pray often, because you often don't know what's lurking deep in your heart. Psalm 139, 23 through 24, let this be a daily prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I find this fascinating because does not God already know your heart? Does not God already know your mind? So why are you asking God to search your heart if he's omniscient? Whose benefit is it for? Is it for God to like, oh, wow, I didn't know that was in your heart? No, God knows it's there. The benefit's for you. You're asking God to do this heart searching, this mind searching, so that he can make you aware of what's lurking there that you can't see so that he can guide you in the truth. And so the primary way you guard your heart, you fill your heart, is by protecting it with God's word. Psalm 119, 9-11. How can a young man, and I'll say young woman, or old man or old woman, keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up in your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we need to guard our hearts with the gospel of truth, the word, and know our hearts and protect our hearts with God's word. All right, number three. Observe or watch out for oncoming temptation. Sometimes it comes at you when you don't expect it, so you need to be watchful. What did Jesus tell his disciples to do when he prayed in the garden? Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, there's two different ways temptations can come at you. You can go looking for temptation, and it finds you very quickly if you're going to look for it. That's when you're not guarding your heart. But what happens when that temptation hits you unexpected? Like, whoa, I didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen. What do, you do in the, what do you do in the heat of the moment? Well, you don't sit there and negotiate with the temptation. You don't try to talk yourself into it. What you need to do is you need to immediately fix your mind on Jesus and the cross. You need to immediately... Do not look inside yourself, but look out towards Jesus and his cross and his love and his grace and his empowering through you. The more you contemplate the cross, the more the temptation will go away. Because you begin to think, Jesus, you died for this sin I'm about to do. And Jesus, it cost you your life. And I want to think about you and I want to glorify you and I want my mind to be filled with you. So be watchful, and then when it hits you, unexpected, always have your mind fixed on Jesus. All right, number four. Think about the consequences of giving in to the temptation. Not only should you be watchful, not only should you be filling your mind with Scripture, not only should you be guarding your hearts and your minds, but sometimes it's helpful to think about the consequences. In other words... How would the reputation of Christ be affected? Who would be damaged? How would your testimony be affected? How many, how many strewn bodies would come behind you and, and how many stumbling blocks would you create if you were to fall into this sin? So think about the consequences. Galatians 6, 7-8 Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are consequences to sin. All right, number five. And again, no particular order. Pray for help in the moment of temptation. The temptation in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. It's how you act out upon it. And so in that moment, you need to pray and ask for help. You can't handle it. You and I need help. 
We need to pray for grace in that moment. And you know this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. Lord Jesus, help me to escape this temptation. I've told you the story about what my dad told me. My dad had a friend that was a business businessman. He traveled a lot, went to different cities. And um, so he was at the hotel, and there, I think it was like one of those hotels that had a really high rise, so diff- different, you know, levels on the elevator. And so he got back from his conference. He got in the hotel, and then this, I guess you'd call it lack of a better term, a lady of the evening provocatively dressed got into the elevator with him. And I think he was like on the 30th floor or something. <laughs> something. So he's like, how long am I going to be in this elevator with this woman, you know, 30 floors up? And so um, he kind of like waited to see what she pushed. And so he knew his was the 30th floor, so he, he pushed floor number two. <laughs> okay. So he got out at floor number two, and he walked the 30 flights of stairs up to his room because he knew in that moment he would be tempted. And he said, I prayed, Lord, give me, give me an answer. How, do, how am I going to get out of this? And so he, he hit the button and got out and walked up the, the rest of the flights of stairs. So just, just things like that. I mean, that's a good example of fleeing, not negotiating, asking for help, and, and getting out of there, um, especially when it just came, came you know, right at you. You didn't have any control over it. Psalm 25, 21. May integrity... And uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. I wait for you to what? I wait for you to help me with integrity and uprightness. I I wait for you to help preserve me. And then we have Jesus' example in Hebrews 12, 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He can help us. And then 2 Corinthians, um, this is more Paul's thorn in the flesh, but the concept I think the principle is is the same. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in me. God is faithful to rescue you. God is faithful to deliver you. God is faithful to help you. But here's a warning. If you willfully, premeditatedly enter into temptation, knowing full well what you're doing, expect God to bail you out at the last minute, he may or he may not. He's not obligated to because you're basically testing God at that point. You're not walking in diligence. You're not guarding your heart. You're not thinking about the consequences. You're being overconfident. That's being presumptuous. Now, God may graciously grant that to you, but don't just expect him to bail you out when you're presumptuously walking to the edge of, of temptation, knowing full well what you're doing. And then number six, and this is probably the trust in Christ alone instead of trusting in yourself. I mean, ultimately, resisting temptation is a matter of trust. Who are you trusting? Are you trusting in yourself, in your confidence, in your ability, in your flesh, in your, um, or are you trusting in the Lord? And we often, you know, this is one of the first scripture verses I memorized as a kid. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. Now, back to Genesis 39. What has to happen here? She was rejected by Joseph, who did the right thing. Obviously, he didn't have Paul's teaching in the New Testament to tell him to flee temptation, but somehow he understood this was a great wickedness against God. He fled. He got out of there because the Lord was with him. He had an intimate relationship with the Lord. She is a powerful, manipulative woman, so she's got to make up a story. And what's the story that she makes up? The story that she makes up is that he tried to rape me. And this is where injustice comes back in, because think about it. Joseph did the right thing, and he's going to be persecuted for doing the right thing, the godly thing. So she's got to sell the story to her servants, because who's not home yet? Pilate's, or Pilate, Potiphar's not home yet. Notice what she says. So verse 13. 
As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household. So she brings in the servants. She's got to convince them that something bad happened. And why does she have to convince them? Because what did they think of Joseph up to this point, probably? He's an honorable man of integrity. Why would, why would we ever question Joseph? Potiphar's left him in charge of everything. I mean, it's he said, she said. So nobody was there to witness it. There's no eyewitnesses. So she's got to sell the story. And notice what she does. How does she manipulate the situation? Well, she does two things. She's kind of sly here, if you, if you read between the lines. First, she plays on their anti-Semitism by calling Joseph that Hebrew. Okay? Notice what he says. See, talking about Potiphar, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us that jew that hebrew look what he's doing so number one she's like playing up their anti-semitism as egyptians against the hebrew man but then second notice what she says did you see the subtle language she used see he has brought among us a hebrew to laugh at us Notice how she makes it a offense against all of them. Well, it's never been us before. It's always been me. I'm, I'm, why in the world would Potiphar's wife all of a sudden want her servants to be part of her? I mean, she's always been up here, and her servants have been down here. But now because she's got to sell the story, it's like, look what he's done to us. He's, made, he's not just made fun of me, but he's made fun of all of us, that Hebrew. Look what he's doing. It, it's conveniently now us. They're probably thinking, well, it's never us before. It was always you, and we're the servants, but now it's us. So she is a woman scorned. She's angry. She's jealous. She's rejected, and she's probably somewhat humiliated. And so now she has to wait for her husband to come home because ultimately Potiphar's got to be the one to act. So what does she do? It's very interesting. Verse 15 as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. It's almost like it's an obsession, like I'm going to hold on to this garment. This is my evidence. This is the only thing left of Joseph, that man I've lusted after, and I've got to hold on. It's like almost like obsessing over this garment until her husband comes home. And again, she needs that piece of evidence because that's the only thing that's going to give her credence to her story because at this point, it's a he said, she said. Potiphar could call in Joseph and he could give a totally different story. And so it's the evidence. Now, when Potiphar comes home, she's not very kind to her husband. Notice what she says to him. Verse 17. She told him the same story that she told to the servants the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. <laughs> What's she doing here? Potiphar, it's kind of your fault. I wouldn't have been in this mess if you hadn't brought that guy here. If you hadn't bought that Hebrew, if you hadn't brought him in here, not to mention that the whole time you're gone, I'm trying to seduce him and corner him, but you know, I'm, I'm leaving that detail out. And so you keep reading. Verse 18, as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now here's verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Now this is where sometimes you read Hebrew narrative and you're like, okay, who's, whose anger is it kindled at? It just says his anger was kindled. Was he angry at Joseph or was he angry at his wife? We don't know. <laughs> Am I angry at you, woman, because I know your character and you're always trying to mess around with these young men, or is he mad at Joseph because Joseph tried to rape his wife? We don't know. All we know is that that word anger means he, it was, he exploded. It was an explosion of furious anger. Now we get to the last part of the narrative, the third scene. And it doesn't quite make sense. But remember the theme? The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So here's the third section. The Lord's gracious presence as Joseph prospers in Pharaoh's prison. 
Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now here's where God's sovereignty comes into play. Potiphar could have killed Joseph on the spot if he wanted to. I left you in charge of everything. I told you not to touch the food. You touched my wife. You tried to rape her. I'm the captain of the king's guard. I'm used to killing people. I'm going to go out and have you assassinated. I'm going to kill you, Joseph. He doesn't. He puts him in prison. And was it just any old prison? Was it some backwater prison that nobody had heard of? What prison is it? It was the prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So again, this is not a coincidence. God, even in the midst of this extreme suffering, is orchestrating things to his purpose. And again, what do we want to scream at the end? So we get to the end of chapter 37. I mean, we get to the end of chapter, yeah, chapter 37. That's not fair. We get to the end of chapter 39. What do we want to say? That's not fair. The second time, Joseph's been betrayed. And now... He's not a slave that has some freedom to move about. He's in a prison. Again, for a crime he did not commit. He was betrayed by his brothers, left for dead, sold into slavery. Now he's in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He acted with utmost integrity. He did what God required. He was obedient. He fled sexual temptation. He did the right thing. And what's the payoff for doing the right thing? You get falsely accused and put into prison. Now, in our modern American sensibilities, what will we expect? Joseph would be vindicated. Everything would turn out right. But like I said earlier, sometimes doing the right thing and acting with integrity may cost you, and you may have to suffer for being holy. But I want you to notice that this last section is almost a mere image of the first section. What did we see in the first section? So it's kind of like a sandwich technique. The first section, middle section, third section. The first section, the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. Last section, the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord was just with Joseph. The Lord gave him success. And it, and it goes on to give even stronger language because notice what it says there. It says, okay, let's see here. Yeah, verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Now, okay, Emmanuel people, what's the word steadfast love? You've been around here long enough. Don't spit on the person next to you when you say it. What's the word? <laughs> chesed. Chesed. Steadfast love. That's the most important word for God's love in the Old Testament. It's his covenant, to t- tenacious covenant love that he has for his people, that he's never going to let them go. He's loyal. So it's the steadfast covenant, tenacious love that God has for Joseph, the Lord is with him. And the Lord is orchestrating all of this so that Joseph is in the prison where the king's prisoners are. Now, how old is Joseph? Remember how it started? He was 17. Now, we don't know how much time has gone by, but he's probably 17, 18. Think about all that he's been through as a 17, 18-year-old young man. He's been betrayed left for dead, his brothers turned against him, sold into slavery, seduced by this powerful woman, accused of rape, and now thrown into prison. But guess what happens when he's in the prison? Again, he's given the responsibility to be in charge of everything, and the prison guard doesn't have to worry about anything when Joseph's in charge. So we have to ask the question, all right, God, where are you? How could you allow this to happen? 
How come bad things happen to godly people who do the right thing? God, you're, you're not doing your job. Come on, God. You need to vindicate Joseph. We want a happy ending. Well, God does not remove Joseph from suffering, but remains with him in the midst of it. God's presence is there ministering to Joseph, whether he's in a pit, left for dead, whether he's seduced by Potiphar's wife, or whether he's rotting in prison. God's there. Now, here's a powerful passage of Scripture that I often go to when we talk about suffering. Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers. They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Notice that God does not say if you pass through the fires. He says when. So here's the truth. God may never take you out of the fire but he will always be there with you right through the fire. And that's exactly what he's doing here with Joseph. We don't always know God's sovereign purposes and why he orchestrates the things the way he does. And many times in pastoral ministry, I've had people come to me and say, why is this happening? And I have to look them in the eye and say, dear brother, dear sister, I don't know why. I can't give you an answer why. I love you. I'll pray for you. I'm sorry it's happening to you, but I can't tell you why. And here's why I can't tell you why. I just plead Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are some things God chooses not to reveal to us. They're secret things. He's not under any obligation to tell us what those things are. We can't peek into God's mind and try to figure it out. He reserves those things simply for himself. So, pastoral wisdom here for you tonight. So when we complain about how things aren't fair or that we should never suffer, let's remember two things. Number one, we are sinful people and deserve nothing but death and hell, but have received God's grace, and we have no right to complain because God was not obligated to save us or show us mercy. God, it's not fair. God, I don't like it. God, why is this happening? And God says, you know what? I didn't have to save you. I could have left you in your sin and sent you to hell, but I've saved you by grace. We have no right to complain to God who saved us by grace. Number two, Christ, Jesus, endured the most excruciating suffering that anybody could ever suffer when he died on the cross to save his people from our sins. Nothing we go through compares to what he endured for us. We look at Joseph and we think, man, that guy suffered a lot. He suffered injustice. Well, let's not forget that Jesus suffered the most of anybody. The cross was beyond just human suffering. Think about the cross for a moment. A lot of people, you know, like the Passion of the Christ and, and some of the movies that show the crucifixion, they really focus in on the physical suffering of Jesus, which it's true. The crucifixion is a physical suffering. But let me remind you, two thieves were crucified next to him that also went through crucifixion. So, just the mere act of crucifixion, yes, painful, but the spiritual agony that Jesus endured on the cross when he took upon God's wrath is more excruciating than anything we could ever comprehend. So Jesus not only knows what it means to suffer physically, but to suffer emotionally, mentally, and spiritually under the wrath of God, being treated as the worst of sinners, even though he never once sinned because God was crediting our sins to him when he was on the cross. So no matter what we're going through, 
Jesus has gone through worse. And he knows us by name. He's adopted us into his family. And he's there with us through the fire. He's there with us through the water. If we're in the pit like Joseph, or if we're being mistreated like Potiphar's wife treated Joseph, or we're, we're sold into, into slavery, or we end up in prison, or we have to endure extreme suffering, Jesus has been there. Because think about Jesus. Jesus was left for dead. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was thrown into the pit of the grave. But three days later, he rose again. And so when you have a relationship with Jesus, you have one who can identify with your suffering. So the question for you tonight is the same question that you would ask for Joseph. Is the Lord with you? Is the Lord with you? Can that be said of you? The Lord, is, the Lord is with me. The Lord is gracious to me. Amid all the heartache or the tribulation you have to endure, is the Lord with you? Is he your anchor? Is he your shield? Is he your comfort? Is he your tower? Is he your solid rock? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I wonder if we're standing on the rock of Jesus tonight as our strong anchor to get us through whatever we face because he faced much more than we could ever imagine and rose victorious so that we could have eternal life.